hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show! Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zach. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 364 of the Stupid Cancer Show, The Voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, proud 19-year young adult brain cancer survivor, coming to you now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan, broadcasting since 2007. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this show, we're talking adoption and cancer. Yes, your nads matter. When chemotherapy comes into play, radiation, surgery, your nads matter. Adoption is an option for many patients who want to build a family after cancer treatment. The process itself can be long, daunting, and very, very expensive. Joining us to share their experience and shed light into the myths and truths of adoption are Matt and Heidi Cahill in our Survivor Spotlight. Young women, leukemia survivor Samantha Stanley. It's going to be a great show, folks. Welcome. Hello, Kenny. Hello, Matthew. Janine, our intern, off mic, waving on the radio. How are you? She said she's fine. And uh, we got Noel on the couch and Sean on the couch. We've got some special in-studio live guests here. We have uh, Ray Mayo, Omar Ishak, and Danny Garvitz, who are interns, residents. What are you guys? Residents. Residents. NYU residents. I met you guys. I was traveling last week. I was at the 57th annual meeting of the oldest man cancer group in the world. <laughs> How do you compare to the first 56? <laughs> the, uh, was it the American Radiation Oncology Society organization or something? What does ASTRO stand for? American Society for Therapeutic Radiation Oncology. There you go. Oh, close, close. That's why you're here. Yeah. Correct me. Exactly. So I was under the impression, I was actually told by Rafael Yecheli, who uh, from the Sylvester in Miami, a really good friend of mine, that this was the very first time in the history of the agenda of Astro, after 56 years, 
that they actually had patient advocate organizations that are part of the agenda. How many years have you guys? Is this your first conference, or you've been to the in the past? I've been to about four, but I haven't I haven't seen anything like that. Right, right. Same. Yeah. So what was it like? I mean, I wanted you guys to talk about yourself a little bit, but like for me, I'm I'm a little awestruck that this was the first time that they. I feel like we've been uncaged, like we're somehow we've been held at bay all these years. We can't let these people in here, and all of a sudden now you had me and Heidi Adams from Critical Mass and Tamika Felder from uh, Survivor.org here talking about what role do the patient advocate groups play to help you guys do your jobs. But before that, l- l- let's take a minute. To tell me about yourself. Let's start with Ray. So uh, my name is Ray. I grew up in Alabama, <clears throat> uh, did college and then med school in St. Louis, moved to Boston uh, where I did internship, met my husband. Now we live in New York and I'm doing residency there. And uh, Danny? Uh, I'm originally from New York, from Long Island. Um, I went to University of Michigan for undergrad, studied uh, biopsychology, then came back to New York for medical school at NYU, and I'm here now for uh, training and residency. Omar? Hey, uh, yeah, I'm Omar. I'm originally from the panhandle of Florida, the part that none of y'all have ever really heard about. That's the Tallahassee part, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm aware right, it exists. Right. Yeah, It's there. It's still there. I uh, went to undergrad at UF, uh, go Gators. Then I went to med school in Baltimore and then came up to New York City for uh, radiation oncology residency. You know, we talk all the time here about where are all the like millennial up-and-comings in the oncology universe. We don't see a lot of them. And it's it's first of all, it's like you're like a little experiment for us. Like, what do we mean to you? And what does cancer mean to you when you're not in this industry for 55, 60 years now? You've been so sort of, I guess, calcified in a sense, to what it's been like to become what it is now. What's it like to just start now with the way it is? And clearly you, you can't answer the first one because you're not 80. But <laughs> as, as, as young guys in New York City, you know, the center of the universe, getting into radiation oncology, can you tell me what has it been like for you in the academic world getting trained? Because, I mean, I could ask a thousand questions, but I just want to hear from you first. Well, I, I think... For for us, it's really about the patients, which is why the event that we had at Astro was uh, very pivotal. I mean, I think we go through medical school and they teach us about the science um, with not as much emphasis, I think, on the human being as uh, a lot of people initially think going into medical school. Um, and then I think in residency, you start to focus a little bit more on that. And that's where I think meeting you guys was actually pretty pivotal and very important for us. So that opens up a second question then. Um, is it fair that the medical school training involve humanitarianism, or is it really you just need to know the science first, or is there some hybrid you think would make more sense for others? I think it's a push that is happening in medical school curriculum that definitely 10 years ago didn't exist. At least in St. Louis, we had courses on practice of medicine, but does that necessarily dominate what we're being exposed to and what we're learning now? It, I think a, a little bit is a, trying to learn like or drink like a water out of a fire hose and the amount of information in four years you're expected to consolidate. In residency, it's a, you're being taught by people doing this for one, two decades and to try to really learn, be on their level at the end of the day. It shouldn't fall to the wayside, but I think, and I think, you know, med schools are making that impetus now and that emphasis on bringing it back to the patient, the reason why we're all there. Um, but it, it is an area to improve. And what's been your take, Danny? 
Um, it, I've actually been very impressed by uh, my medical school. I went to NYU. They actually had, I'm being serious, they had a very uh, strong humanitarian um, influence. Uh, we, you know, we had humanism and medicine courses throughout, um, starting from the patient experience um, as a first year, uh, getting into to, to patient rooms and, and meeting them on a personal level before knowing how to take their blood pressure uh, or knowing how to manage their disease, um, but getting to know the patient um, as, a, as a person. So that's actually an influence the way that I've um, tried to, to practice um, medicine from, from there on. So yeah, I, mean, just, I do think that medical schools are getting better at it. Well, I, that makes me happy, yeah. having not gone to medical <laughs> school, to hear this from the horse's mouth. <clears throat> you know, I mean, just to come full circle again, it, it really has been this mystery of where are all the young interns and residents now that are like under 30, under 35 years old that are going to enter the world and we are we are their, quote, American Cancer Society from 100 years ago, but we're edgier and we're 2015 and we're more focused on the younger people, even though our parents matter and they're the majority of cases. Um, you know, it is my hope that we could become a window for you guys and the role I'm on the fence here a lot. And there's so much we can talk about this after the show. Um, we've been during the show because this, this show is about uh, a reproductive challenges, sure. you know, for uh, fertility, you know, there's you guys run radiation. This causes, in, in infertility, you know, you can become barren because of this, and for, forget about having an orchiectomy or, or a hysterectomy. Just having the procedures. There's there's a level of um of a uh, you know you kind of break the Hippocratic oath to do well. You know, um, you know you're doing harm to, to fix people, but there's a consequence. So for me, the humanitarian component is how can we help you guys without making you feel bad that you have to save people's lives. We hear this a lot, Doctor Guilt that they have to go through this, and it's, it's a tough gig. Um, and again, having been personally saved by radiation, I, I commend you guys for wanting to enter the space. So we're going to kick off the show here with our with our Survivor Spotlight. In our spotlight, Samantha Staley, cancer survivor, been in remission for 11 years. She was diagnosed when she was 18 with a type of lymphoma caused by an immune deficiency she was born with. Uh, her sister also had the same type of cancer as she did and had a stem cell transplant. This is going to be a great interview. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Samantha Stanley. Samantha. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for agreeing. Yeah, where are you calling in from? Um, I'm calling in from, well... Specifically, I'm calling from Edison. <laughs> oh, Jersey. Okay. Well, I, I was just yeah, curious. Yeah, Jersey. Well, we get people from all over the world. I'm just curious. Jersey counts, actually. So technically, that is another part of the world. Literally. <laughs> wow. So um, your your story is remarkable because to me, it speaks to what is the root of what causes cancer. And when you're so young and you were born with a condition that induced this, we talk about research and prevention and risk reduction that that doesn't really exist in your world. Right. Yeah, so, that doesn't exist. So what were you doing yeah. at 17? Can I assume you were just an average normal high school student? Yeah, I was actually uh, one of those overachievers who I was in plays and I was in chorus and I was about to test for my black belt and I was busy, busy, and got stomach pains and went into the hospital, and everything changed uh, from being, you know, 100% uh, 
go, go, go to just stop. And um, that was that was a whole, like a crazy because at that point in your life, you're that's when you're at the peak. You know, I'd just gotten into college, and I was really excited about where I was going in my life, and everything stopped. So did you know that you had this immune deficiency prior to and that it could create this or cause this, or is that discovered post-diagnosis? Well, I was born with the immune deficiency, and so was my sister. And we actually were... Um, sickly throughout our whole lives and we had tons of surgeries and um, we had a lot of uh, hiccups here and there and at 18 it was like they they thought we had one kind of immune deficiency but we really had something that was worse so the side effect for that immune deficiency is lymphoma but we didn't know that at the time because we were misdiagnosed that's always fun to be misdiagnosed like that <laughs> Absolutely. Did you? But they didn't have the kind of genetic testing for it when I was that age. Right. Well, this was eleven years ago, back in the Stone Age, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you get to finish high school? Did you get to go to college? What was your treatment therapy like? Actually, I had to defer from college for a year. They held my spot, and I went through my treatment. I relapsed four times. And finally, at Robert Wood, they said, there's really nothing more we can do for you. And uh, they sent me to Sloan Kettering for a bone marrow transplant. And that was where I was in isolation for three months. And then once I got out of there, I was considered 100% donor. And I went home that February and I went to college in September. What type of transplant was it? Was it autologous? You know your donor? It was my sister, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. My older sister. Uh, my older sister does not have the immune deficiency, but me and my younger sister do. So we actually um, both got transplants from my older sister. I got a bone marrow, and my younger sister got a stem cell transplant. So your older sister is a double donor to her two sisters. That is an extraordinary story. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, and she was very happy to be able to do that and basically save the lives of both of her sisters. That's incredible. Really incredible. How is your sister doing these days? How are you doing these days? I hate being asked that question, but we technically have to ask the question. <laughs> I am actually uh, I'm great. I have a four-year-old daughter, and my younger sister is actually... Uh, a hairdresser, and my older sister is having her second child. Wow, that's really great. When you were going through this, I mean, eighteen is is age is a fertile age. Were was that discussed with you at the time that this these treatments might impact your ability to bear a child? Um, yeah, actually, I went through a really rough time with it because I they threw me into treatment because the cancer was kind of everywhere at that point and spreading. And they said, you know, we have to do this. We have to do this. And they did what they could to preserve everything by putting me on birth control, but it really didn't completely save everything. So with me, they were kind of like, well, it's too late. What's done is done. 
now you need a bone marrow transplant or you're going to die. And there was no time to freeze my eggs or do any preventative measures. So me, I was, you know, at that point I was <laughs> dying. I was throwing up blood. I wasn't, th- you know, thinking about having kids. I was just like, save me. I don't care. Like, I, don't, I'm, I really could care less. Right. What's happening, you know, five years from now, I want to go to college, you know. And I recovered, and I, um, after the fact, I started to go into menopause. And then I was told that I really didn't have a lot of options, and it was a 2% chance I was going to have kids. And then you and went then, ahead and proved them all wrong. Yeah, and then I did. <laughs> <laughs> was that? But my sister, she froze her egg. Okay. Well, that's uh, right. So, so was this a total surprise when you got pregnant? You just were anticipating yeah. when you. So, can we talk about if you're okay? Um, your partner meeting. Uh, what is it like to have that? Did you have the uncomfortable conversation? Um, yeah, I did, and I was actually already made an appointment with a fertility doctor to check everything out and see what my options were. And uh, right before the appointment, I found out I was pregnant. So, Well, that's the best news ever. Yeah, I was like, I don't have to go now. Yay. <laughs> were you monitored? Was there any special circumstances during your, your, uh, your first trimester, second trimester? Um, yeah, I actually went to a doctor. And uh, I was high risk throughout my whole pregnancy, but right. everything went great. That's wonderful. What a great story. And your sister, you said, is doing well as well, but she did uh, preserve her fertility. Yeah, she got her eggs frozen, um, but she isn't in a position to know um, what her fertility status is. Um, she's still single right now, so right. we're really not positive on, on what will happen with her, whether she can carry a child or not. So, Well, we can hope for the best. You are a great story. I, I, I'm on record as saying never let anyone tell you you can't do something, so you clearly are um, defined of the people that told you that you'll never have a child. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. So you came to our conference recently in uh, in New York. Um, how did you find out about stupid cancer? Or, or were you, I guess the, the larger question is, were you even made aware that there were other women going through cancer when you were 18? Um, not really. I mean, it was, you sort of sat in a, in a hospital room and some people came in and were like, do you want to paint this box? And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And there were a couple other girls that I met that were near my age, but um, still a lot younger than me. And um, there wasn't there was some communication between us, but it really wasn't. I had no idea there was something that existed like stupid cancer. And if I had known that when I was in the hospital, I was a very vocal patient. I was very outgoing. I'm very very sick, but I was. I dressed up as the Easter Bunny and went around to all the rooms because I wanted to be more than just sitting in a bed. And so I would have loved to have an outlet 
to socialize and connect with other cancer patients who were going through the same thing as me, there was really, I, I actually would talk to doctors and play Scrabble with doctors just to have someone who was on my intellectual level, at, you know, in any scope of that. And when I found out about super cancer about a year ago, even though I'm 10 years out, I still do a lot of fundraising and um, like a lot of volunteering uh, for foundations and hospitals, and I'm really involved, there's still a part of me that wants to connect to people who have gone through what I've gone through. And when I found this site, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then I wanted to go to the conference last year, and I didn't because I was too late. And then this year I saw it and I was like, oh, I have to go. I just want to be around people who I don't have to say what I'm thinking. I think that's the best way it could be explained. I don't want to have to say what I'm thinking because we all know what you're thinking because we're all thinking the same thing. Right. It's like, what do you have? Oh, I have this. What do you have? You know, you don't have to be like, somebody's like, oh, you had cancer? Like, no. Like, we all know we had cancer. Yeah, there's, no one's asking you to paint the box. Right. No one's going to ask me to paint the box. Yes. <laughs> so I, I hope you were able to, uh, maybe you want to consider coming out to Denver next spring for our, our massive conference, uh, CancerCon. There's going to be about 650. You thought East was big with 200. Uh, there's going to be yeah. six to 700 uh, in Denver, and it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, if I if I can make it, I would love to. I mean, it looks amazing. It really does. So what are you doing these days now? Married with a baby, a full-time mom, or are you are working? I am a working mom. I'm actually a single mother. Okay. And I work full-time, um, and I also have a part-time job. And I am actually soon, I am running a Thanksgiving dinner at St. Peter's Hospital where we provide all the food, like a buffet, for all the parents and families that are stuck there on Thanksgiving. So I work with this one foundation in particular that helps um, a lot of kids with cancer, the Francis Foundation, and they're located in Howell. And I've been with them since um, I was sick because they helped me, and I've been a trustee for the foundation ever since. So I do a lot of work with them. Um and I'm always looking for more stuff to do. That's what I'm doing. I also do some stand-up comedy in my third time. So I'm oh, a little very busy, nice. But it's great. <laughs> well, I hope we can keep you busy as an advocate and a volunteer for us. It would be our our, our honor to have you represent our interests. One of the you, you said something which always hits home, which is like, "Where were you, stupid cancer, when I needed you?" Because I didn't know that you existed. And that's always the running joke here, because people find us a little too late. And we want to try to yeah. eliminate that. So how do we let people know we exist before they need us? But then you're not literally looking for us when you need us and you don't need us. Um, but I'd love to have you help us solve that riddle and uh, spread some joy over the holidays to people that don't know we exist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do know one of the hospitals I'm involved with, they do give out some of your literature. But I, I kind of part of me thinks it's not enough. Part of me thinks that there really needs to be somebody who can fully explain the depth of what stupid cancer is and that it's not just a pamphlet that you read. It's, you know, connecting with someone just like you and really um, 
feeling like you belong somewhere and that there's a family for for what you've been through and that you're not strange and that, you know, you're not somebody who lives in the past. When you have cancer, you remember it for the rest of your life and you will never forget it and you will never think that it was okay. But obviously you're stronger, but you want to be around people that feel that buzz, that you feel that I did this and you did this and we did this and we're never going to forget because why should we, you know? And a lot of other people just don't, they just don't get that feeling. And that was something that I got when I went to the conference in New York and it was amazing the whole day. You felt like you were buzzing and that's what I would like to express to the, to these other, you know, other teenagers or young adults that are either in the hospitals or home and, and struggling. I think that's what we need to bring to them and not just the pamphlet. No, and I agree. Your passion is contagious and I'm, I'm so proud to have you, you know, we're the family you don't want to be a part of, but once you're here, you literally are, like you said, you are, we are family here, brothers and sisters in arms. So I, I can't thank you enough for your bravery to come on the show. I, I look forward to seeing you <clears throat> at any one of our events here in the metro area going forward. And again, if you want to come to Denver, let's figure out a way to get you to Denver. CancerCon, here we come. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. All right, take care of that Bambino, Samantha. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank okay, you so Samantha much for Stanley, having Stanley, everybody. Bye. Bye. It's a powerful story, guys, right? So these these are the stories. These are our stories. And again, we're, we're being joined now by three young gentlemen, handsome gentlemen, dressed very nicely here. Uh, um, they are uh, radiation oncology residents at NYU here. Uh, Danny uh, Garvetz, Omar Ishak, and Ray Mayo uh, met them at a conference for radiation oncology last week in, what was that, San Antonio? Antonio I yeah. lose track of where I go. But uh, they're here. It's very exciting to have the next generation of leadership the brilliant young minds of tomorrow going to save our lives here in studio listening to our stories. Uh, with that, all right, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss an event again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer meetup, visit stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup all right we've got a couple happening we've got phoenix arizona anaheim california san diego california and don't forget about omg west happening i guess in like two or three weeks uh in irvine california and you can register for omg west at omgsummit.org no one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks download instapeer for iphone ipad and android create your account and instantly start chatting with someone just like you who's been there and walked in your shoes. Join our community of thousands of cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers on your phones right now. Instapeer.org. We launched a news aggregator on Tumblr for the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. Check out CancerMadeMeBroke.com. That's it. CancerMadeMeBroke.com, our national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You did not ask to get sick, and your community wants to help you. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. 
Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new stupid cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your stupid Stupid cancer Cancer news. Our main segment, we're going to be featuring Matt and Heidi Cahill, high school sweethearts, dual cancer survivors from Falls Church, Virginia, who's chosen to grow their family through adoption because cancer makes you infertile. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Matt and Heidi Cahill. Hey, guys. Hey there. We are really, really excited to have you on the show. We've done lots of shows on surrogacy, but not many shows on adoption. And I'm really excited because this is, for me at least personally, the fundamental differential of the young adult cancer movement is reproductive health. And it's not something you typically have to face when you're under 13 or over 55, which are the other groups that get a lot of attention. And what makes young adult cancer different, among many other obvious things, are the fact that we are in our fertile years. And uh, cancer can be the gift that keeps on giving, but it's the gift that takes things away. And uh, I love you guys, too. Normally, I ask, where were you six months before your diagnosis? But you were married. So (laughs) we we could talk about... (laughs) You know, high school sweethearts, dual cancer survivors. This is a an incredible story. I want to give some attention to. So, um, let's just start with high school sweethearts. That's so like not like it's so it seems so retro these days. That's amazing. <laughs> it's a, well, we're from the Midwest, very, so it's very cliche. I was say very Midwest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's amazing. You're married, and then so Matt, you were diagnosed with testicular cancer. Right after you were married, was this a self-exam? Did you fall? How did this manifest? Yeah, no, it, it was. It was right after we were married. I was 22 years old, uh, so it was just uh, two months yeah. after our marriage. And, you know, obviously the last thing you're expecting, right? We just moved to a brand-new city away from our family and friends, just got married. And then, uh, you know, you hear those words that everyone dreads, you have cancer, um, so yeah, it was a self-exam. I just, uh, you know, noticed something wasn't quite right and went to the doctor and had it checked out. Um, not thinking that anything truly was wrong, right? At 22, you feel pretty invincible. <laughs> so, uh, fortunately I did go to the doctor though, and, uh, that's what it was. How long did you have to wait between getting actually diagnosed and the, uh, I assume you had an orchiectomy? I did have an orchiectomy, yes, and it was all very quick because, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, with testicular cancer, it spreads very quickly. And so it was, uh, as I mentioned, our, we'd just gotten married, and my doctor actually knew that I had cancer right away when I went in, uh, and they did some tests and did the exam, and uh, it was the day that I was going home, uh, back home for Christmas, and he knew that it was our first Christmas as a married couple, and so he said, all right, he's like, well, go home, uh, you know, go see your families for Christmas and then come back and, you know, have a follow-up appointment with me right when you're back from the holidays and, you know, we will see what's going on. Uh, so I didn't know it at the time, but he, he had already pretty much confirmed in his mind that it was cancer, uh, but he allowed us to go and, you know, have a, a carefree first Christmas back at home with our families. And then when I came back uh, right after the holidays, he said, hey, Uh, It is confirmed it's cancer, and I scheduled surgery for the very next day, 
uh, had had the orchiectomy on New Year's Eve, so quite uh, quite the ending of the year. No, it's it's really incredible. I know. Uh, spoiler alert: this show's about adoption. But were you given the option to bank your sperm? I was. Uh, so I was able to bank my sperm, and there was still, you know, a good chance I would be fertile after the chemotherapy and the orchiectomy. Uh, but you know, there's just not a ton of research out there. Uh, for uh, fertility and, you know, the quality of sperm after chemotherapy at that young of an age. Uh, so they really encouraged me to go and bank sperm, uh, which I did. So I, you know, did that right before the surgery and chemotherapy started. So, yes, I, I did do that as a, you know, additional option for, you know, future children. Were you treated in a, a community cancer center or somewhere uh, larger? I'm sorry, what was that again? Where were you treated? What Which center? Uh, yep, I was treated at Georgetown University Hospital. So they have the Lombardi Cancer Center there. So a really big place, basically. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember your chemotherapy? What was your protocol? How many rounds? Yeah, so I had uh, four rounds of BEP, uh, so bleomycin, atopicide, and cisplatin, and it uh, was quite horrendous. Uh, they made several, several advancements, even in the, you know, nine years since I had cancer, uh, in the terms of anti-nausea medicine. Right. So I, I was very, very sick, uh, and the way the cycles lined up is uh, it was mostly inpatient, or a lot of it was inpatient, so I'd be in the hospital for a week straight, and then I would get to go home uh, and, you know, just come in once a week uh, for the next two weeks, and then have a rest week of recovery, and then back in the hospital for a full week again. Uh, and just do that over and over. So it was uh, it was pretty brutal. I was just constantly sick to my stomach. Uh, I could really not keep much food down for uh, for those several months. And uh, again, we just moved out here, just had new jobs, just got married. So uh, that whole time I was going through that. You know, Heidi was coming and visiting me at the hospital uh, in the evenings, and then going to work during the day. So uh, you can imagine it was a pretty stressful time. <laughs> Well, and let, let's let's turn the tide here then. At the time, Heidi, just married, you're now thrust into this role of being a caregiver to your young husband. What was that like for you? And did you have any support to play that role? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's equally as crazy. I think um, one of the unique things about our situation is we've kind of approached cancer from both sides. We've both had a turn at being the patient, and we've both had a turn at being the caregiver, um, obviously at 23, I was 23 at the time, it, you didn't do what you need to do. I always say, you know, people say, oh, how'd you get through that? You know, you're so amazing, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, I so say you just get up each day and you do your best. Uh, we were very blessed that even despite the difference, I mean, we had the most supportive family um, and friends and we had family members come out, you know, we would have a little schedule, you know, to come out on certain weeks to help um, when it was even the most critical so we were very blessed to have the level of support, but obviously being new to an area, we hadn't had time to put down roots with coworkers or organizations and, and stuff. So it was, it was a very lonely time at times um, and a lot to face, but in the end, it ultimately, I think definitely made us both stronger people, both as individuals and as a couple. Right. And then as if like this young adult cancer story didn't end, Years later, you're living happily married, and then you're trying to start a family. Who knows what that's like to start a family? Who thought that that would ever happen? Of course, that's what you're supposed to do. And then, boom, going through IVF treatments, and you were 
diagnosed with what type of breast cancer? I was diagnosed with stage two triple positive breast cancer. Um, and then I also found out on top of that that I am a carrier for the BRCA2 gene as well, um, which increase, just increases your risk um, for both breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so that happened not quite eight years to the day, but pretty close. I went in um, to meet with my surgeon for just an initial consultation because I didn't know what it was um, right before Christmas and found out right after Christmas um, that I it was cancer. So it was kind of eerie to have the timing of the initial consultation and then the diagnosis. I mean, it was very similar in mirrored mass experience, you know, just eight years later. You guys are fun dates, I have to say. <laughs> we we try. <laughs> so again, like here you are years after Matt's remission, putting this behind you, living your life, and then bam, you're pulled right back into this. I don't want you to have to go back there emotionally, but clearly this was just an like were you like, really again? Yeah. yeah I mean maybe I mean, not my it, first reaction. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and you nailed it. It was very emotional. Uh, I mean, obviously for Heidi, uh, but also for myself in the sense that, you know, I I had a pretty rough go at it, as I mentioned earlier. And so I was just devastated to think that she was going to have to endure those same treatments that I did. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was not only shocking, but uh, devastating. <laughs> So, Heidi, how long was it between your initial diagnosis and when the treatment started? And was there any discussion of fertility preservation prior to, or was it just the genetics made it too complicated? Yeah, so I went in just for, I guess my biopsy was at the very beginning of the year. I think it was like January 4th, and then I got my results, I think, on January 9th. Um, so it was pretty quick after the initial biopsy. It was about a month total between when I first found something I thought was kind of weird and then, you know, getting the diagnosis. Um, and it actually came five days before we were getting on a plane to go to India for my sister's wedding. So that was a little complex and stressful. Um, so I elected to, after I consulted with my oncologist and surgeon, um, to go ahead and go on that trip and be there for that life life event and moment um, for my sister, which I'm very grateful that I made that choice. There was the option um, to explore fertility, but with my type of cancer, triple positive, meaning that it is essentially feeds off of hormones. It likes hormones. Um, so the idea of having to go through IVF take additional hormones to stimulate, you know, the production was not super advisable. Of course, it's an individualized decision and they can work around it to the best of their ability, but it's, right. it's not probably the best thing for me to do. Um, so it was really hard. I mean, it was devastating and it was stressful and we had some long talks and I was just, you know, devastated, but I ultimately decided I did not want to delay chemotherapy. So we moved forward um, without banking any eggs. Right, and there are stories of women who are not uh, hormone uh, positive who choose to forego chemotherapy to preserve themselves, and then they delay the start of treatment, and it makes them have poor outcomes. It, it's really, this is right. the story of our generation. We shouldn't have to pick and choose whether we become parents or not. And I'm sorry that you guys made the decision that you made, but you had to, and now you're making 
uh, I guess I hate the expression. What lemonade from lemons? Got hard. I can't think of anything better to say right now than that. But you chose to have a prophylactic prophylactic hysterectomy to reduce the BRCA risks of ovarian and all the other fabulous stuff that that brings with it. Um, but I guess did you? Uh, <laughs> this is our hashtag. For, did you chuck your sperm? That's our hashtag for the show. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I am taking steps towards a prophylactic hysterectomy. Um, I went ahead and did the prophylactic double mastectomy, and right. now I'm on a new treatment protocol, which is going well. Um, so assuming this continues really well, I'll probably be um, looking at the, the surgery for the hysterectomy sometime later this year okay. or maybe you know early next year. Obviously, with the adoption pending, it's a more complicated of course, <laughs> the of timing course. of that. Um, but we're right. working through that with my treatment team. So, yeah, we're definitely moving forward. You might as well just eliminate all the risks that you can. We have all these discussions on the show. How many things can you take out of your body and still live as a functional person? Totally. Yeah, take it, it off. Like a lot of them are unnecessary. Yeah. That, who needs breasts and testicles? We, they're they're irrelevant, <laughs> irrelevant organs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so let's get to the gist of it. Adoption is this big mystery of vortex that no one really understands that you need it. It's got myths and facts, and it's. I was hoping you could talk us through. First of all, the you've already articulated the uh, the tip of the iceberg is the emotional decision to go through this process, and then what it takes to actually make that happen. I, I can't imagine you knew what you were in for when you started down that road. No, we really no, didn't I mean... at all. We did a a lot of research and we went uh, and talked to, you know, different agencies in the area to get a better understanding for all the different options available, whether it be, you know, domestic adoption or international adoption and what that means from an age perspective of the child that you, you know, ultimately hope to parent. And it's really quite different. And certainly with domestic adoption, which is the route we have chosen, Uh, It's really different in all 50 states. There are different laws uh, for every different area that uh, really define what adoption is in that state and set different parameters. So, for instance, some states have a revocation period of 30 days, whereas some are 24 hours, right? So there's uh, what they consider adoption-friendly states uh, for uh, for that reason. So some, some states are preferred over others in terms of ease of adoption, but certainly uh, it is not an easy process. No uh, no way about it. So can you go over some of the, I mean, you need an attorney. I would imagine you need like a, your own attorney and who talks to another attorney. Sure. So it kind of depends. Um, there's agency adoption and then there's private adoption. And so, and then there's variations on that theme. Um, so for us, with domestic adoption, we're actually working with two different agencies, and we've retained a private adoption attorney just to cover all of our bases. Um, but again, as Matt mentioned, you know, different states are more friendly towards adopt prospective adoptive adoptive parents, and other states feel really strongly and might be more friendly towards birth parent rights. And there's no right or wrong answer. There's probably a sweet spot, as Matt mentioned. It varies wildly um, from state to state. Uh, so we ultimately chose to work in both our local area and then also um, the Midwest because we have a lot of ties with that. So we're also working with an agency um, based in Illinois. 
Um, but as Matt said, you know, there's a lot of options. So we do have a private adoption attorney just to have on retainer in case we have questions and he can advise us. Or if an opportunity came up to pursue a private adoption, which would be somebody contacting us outside of an agency, um, that we would be prepared for that as well. So it's really one of those things that you have to be ready at a moment's notice to drop everything and have your baby. <laughs> or you might get notice and have to wait several months. So you have to be prepared for the whole spectrum of situations. I have uh, some very dear friends of mine who are in, infertile, not because of cancer, for other reasons, and they just went through an adoption. It took them two and a half years, and I remember having to write them a letter of recommendation, and they had they basically shop themselves to agencies that they're worthy of being parents, and I feel like that's humiliating, and, and you shouldn't have to do that. Has that been your experience, or has it been very different? Uh, I'd say that that's a somewhat accurate description. I don't, I don't know if I'd go so far as humiliating, but it is frustrating, I would say, uh, in the sense that you are right. You very much literally have to get a license to parent. Uh, you know, we had to have four or five letters of recommendation from people. We had to fill out uh, tons and tons and tons of paperwork. I mean, more than if you were getting, you know, a top-secret clearance for the government, right? They right. have to know every single thing about you, about your past. Uh, and so it really is very thorough, uh, and it's, it's time-consuming, not only collecting all the data and the information, but then sending it to them and having them review it, and then they go back and forth and do numerous interviews, not only with the people that wrote our letters of recommendation, but us. Uh, you know, they did several home visits to interview Heidi and I, both individually and separately. Uh, it just seemed like it was a uh, full-scale test to see if we were going to, you know, get the passing grade to, to see if we uh, are fit to even have the opportunity to to parent, which which can be frustrating. So, where are you specifically now in that process? Yeah, so we are through all of our paperwork and our interviews and our background checks has come in. So we're considered what they call home study approved, which some people also fondly like to refer to as paper pregnant. Ah, got um, it. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of weird. Um, and that means that essentially we have the license to parent, so to speak, and we are active with both of our agencies. So we have an online profile with both of them, and we had to create this little book that they call Profile Book. So it's a very Match.com-like type of thing right? where you make a book about yourselves and your family and your community and what you like and... And then you put this together, and um, they review the criteria that you have as a prospective adoptive parent, and they review the criteria that a birth parent would have around, you know, what they're hoping for for their child. And if you match with those criteria, then they would show your profile book to the birth parents uh, to review. And domestically in the States, the birth parent chooses. Um, so they could look at several books. They could look at just one book. It's whatever they connect with, um, they may want to meet. So that's a possibility that they might, you know, if they like what they see on paper, they want, you know, they might um, potentially want to meet or have a Skype call. Um, so we're just in that process of waiting. It could be next week. It could be a year. It could be two years. We have, we have no way of knowing. Um, and so it's kind of frustrating because you can't, you know, in some ways all the paperwork is tedious, but at least you feel productive. And right. now you just sit there and hope that you're going to get a call. Really, and I, I remember the waiting game with my friends, and, and I, the good news is they have a beautiful baby boy now, and, and he's amazing, and it's, it's wonderful, and they're happy, and it's a real nice happy ending for them. We obviously wish the same for you, but the elephant in the room here is cost, 
And we announced on our right. news we have a, a, a partnership with Give Forward called CancerMadeMeBroke.com, which is a way to crowdfund uh, from your community to cover costs because, you know, you didn't ask to get sick and your community does want to help you. And you guys have turned to crowdfunding to help you not have to go broke because you didn't ask to get sick. H- how have you found that to be working for you? The response um, when we launched our campaign, it, we used youcaring.com just because they don't actually charge you, <laughs> like some of the other sites, um, which has been really great, and we've we really enjoyed that platform. Um, but when we launched our campaign, Complete the Cahills, thought that was very cute. Um, it was incredible. It was very humbling, quite honestly. It's weird to put yourself out there like that and put your story out there. And so we, we really struggled with the decision to even do it. Um, but as you said, it's expensive. So we finally kind of bit the bullet on that. And once we put it out, I mean, we are, we were, I don't know, I think we raised over $12,000 in 24 hours. I mean, it was just incredible to see a community come together, people we didn't know very well, people we didn't know at all, friends of friends, um, family. It, it just, it's come from all over the world. I mean, we've had donors from Australia to Singapore to India to Russia. I mean, it's just been really, really amazing. Um, so we're just incredibly humbled and grateful. All right. So you've each been caregivers to each other. You've each beaten cancer. How the hell are you so happy? <laughs> Well, that that's a great question. I mean, I think that, you know, with me getting cancer so young in life, uh, that it really does change your perspective. I mean, I would say I've generally always been a happy guy, but it really does make you feel so grateful just to have a new opportunity to, you know, live life, right, and make it uh, make it as happy as possible. There's just simply not time <laughs> to not be happy and be nice to people and, and lead a, a good life. Uh, and I think we've both been in some ways lucky enough to, uh, to see what it could be. And so I think we're very fortunate and we count our blessings and really try to, to live life to the fullest. Well, I, I, again, I commend you on your bravery. Thank you for coming on the show. I really hope maybe you guys want to consider coming out to, I know you're raising money. I'm telling you to spend money, but we have a, our cancer con event in Denver uh, coming up and there's, there's going to be 700 some odd people just like you there. And uh, it's it's an experience like nothing. I wish we had something in Virginia coming up, but we don't. We're trying to do some more stuff in D.C., so it'd be great to meet you when we do something down there. But we're glad you're part of the family that no one wants to belong to. And uh, we 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 really wish you guys the best of love, health, luck, life, and good spirit. Well, thank you very much. We really, really appreciate the opportunity, and we are looking forward to meeting you at some point as well. And would love to attend that event in Colorado at some point and looking forward to more events out in the D.C. area. All right. Matt and Heidi Cahill, high school sweethearts, married, dual cancer survivors and caregivers to each other on the path to adoption. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. All right, so let me get back to our, our residents here, literally our residents here, uh, Ray Mayo, Omar Ishak, and uh, Danny Garvitz. Uh, NYU residents for in uh, radiation oncology. So it's exciting to have you here to begin with, but you've just heard two, three, actually three. We've got a twofer with the, with the Cahills. Incredible stories of how young adult cancer is different. And um, not to put you on the spot with a gotcha, but how, how do you feel right now? Does, is it interesting to hear these stories that you, you wouldn't have normally heard? I'll let either one of you take this. 
Definitely. I think the privilege, the amount of time that we get to spend with patients on our end, A, you know, we don't meet a lot of young adult patients. And then secondarily, you're limited to what, 15 minutes and, and maybe 30 minutes of time. So to hear this aspect, it's, it is incredible, like you said. I think to that type of aspect of it prior you, you know, to this, I think, especially before prior to being a resident, I think it's reading books like um, The Fault in Our Stars or Seeing 50-50 with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I think this, this is incredible to be able to hear this side of it too, to emphasize what's happening after, they, after the door closes and what kind of, what's happening at home. Right. And it, it honestly is, you know, you get 15 minutes. Most doctors, some doctors primarily get seven minutes. How do you have a compassionate conversation with somebody when you don't even know what they're eating or what their life is like and you just have to follow all these clinical rules? It's very difficult. So it's a tough balance. And I don't think you guys get enough credit for, I think you get a lot of, a lot of flack and it's, it's not justified because you have to do your jobs and there's two schools of thought that I've been on, on both sides of. One is I don't need my doctor to have a personality because I can take care of the other stuff. But there are people who need their doctors to be nurse-ish in a sense when there maybe aren't nurse navigators or social workers on hand. And what burden does that really put on you to play that role? And, and radiation tech and radiation oncology, is is it is a very different game because it's it's very calculated and scientific in the sense versus the oncologist who's the one deciding what the recipe is and understanding the humanity. And it's not, I also think it's unfair to say, well, you could get cancer too. Cause I don't, I hate saying that to people. That's not fair to say that. Cause then why would you have to think about things like that? Just like, Oh, well you could be a radiation oncologist. No, I can't because just got had it. So I envy and I don't envy uh, medicine uh, uh, professionals in medicine these days. It's it's difficult more than ever um, to do that. But I commend you guys on, on A, coming to Astro, uh, fighting the octogenarian wave and, <laughs> and bringing the bell curve down just a little bit of the average attendee there. It was really great. Um, but uh, I hope to have you guys more involved in what we do and to figure out, I'm going to, what's that, the young rad onks. That's our hashtag. Be the young rad onks of stupid cancer and uh, get you guys down the rabbit hole. So thank you for coming in studio. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right. I also want to mention one last thing. Uh, tonight's show is uh, sponsored by our friends at Walgreens, uh, Chasing Life, ABC Family, our good friend Atai Ricci, and by Teva Pharmaceuticals. Also, CancerCon exhibitor registration opens when, Kenny? Tomorrow? Uh, it's open. Oh, it is open. Yeah. we've. Brought, I think we've got maybe... 10 or 15. Okay. Yeah. If you work for a nonprofit organization in the cancer space, we invite you to exhibit at CancerCon, the largest conference in the world for young adult cancer. Uh, Registration online at cancercon.org. And OMG West happening November 26th in Irvine is open. We're like, what, 75 or 80% sold out right now? Yeah, I'm just fact-checking that date, though. Yeah. Is it November 26th? It's November 21st. 21st. I was a week off. November 21st. (laughs) Fact-checking. All right. You constantly need to be back. Yes, it's the nature of me. Anyway, thank you guys for listening to the show. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. 
Okay, folks, that's our show. The 364th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And always follow us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Samantha Stanley, Matt and Heidi Kale, and our NYU residents, Ray Mayo, Omar Ishak, and Danny Garvetz, live here in studio. Broadcasting since 2007, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of my whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here on the next exciting podcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks.